Children, uh, have you ever had um, a situation where your, let's say your dad, it might have been your mom, but let's just go with your dad uh, uh, for this example, where your dad has uh, wanted you to do something that was a little scary for you to do? I'll just give you a few examples so you... Uh, and this may or may not be something that has happened to you, but if it isn't, you can think of another example, uh, perhaps, that is similar. But, for example, if you uh, were uh, maybe uh, someplace, it wouldn't be around here because it's very flat around here, but someplace where um, there was it was hilly, and maybe your uh, dad uh, or your mother, one of your parents, asked you to climb a steep part of the hill uh, where it was quite steep, and, um, and it was kind of scary. Uh, maybe you had a situation like that, or maybe there was uh, a situation where uh, one of your parents, your dad, asked you to go into a kind of a spooky place at nighttime, uh, a dark room or, uh, or a, an abandoned house maybe. That would really be scary. Um, or, uh, or a shed or someplace like that, or even the woods, but it was dark, uh, and it was kind of scary to you. Or maybe it was... Um, uh, maybe you were at a national park or something and there was a, a ledge that you had a beautiful scenery that you could see if you walked up to the ledge, but it was scary because it dropped off and, and it dropped way off. Uh, and maybe your dad said, come on up with me, let's, let's go up to the ledge and see the view here, even though it's kind of high. Probably in situations like that, if you had that happen to you or a similar situation, your dad or your mother, but again, we'll go with dad. I keep saying that, and then I mention the mom. Um, <laughs> your dad said, well, let me hold your hand. It'll be okay. Let me hold your hand. And so he would give you his hand or say, I'll hold you. If it was, Let's say we were scurrying up a tree or something that you'd never been up before when you were a little... Uh, uh, small and you were just learning how to climb trees. I'll, I'll hold you. I'll make sure you don't fall or I'll catch you if you slip. But your dad gave you something to assure you that, um, that you were going to make it safely through the experience that was kind of scary to you. Uh, typically, uh, I'll hold your hand, which was your parents, your dad's assurance that it's going to be okay. Um, you will get through this. And you'll make it safely, even though you're kind of scared. So the hand of your dad represents, uh, it's a sign to you that everything is going to be okay. He's going to make sure it is. He is, uh, it's a sign that uh, things are going to be okay. Well, this passage talks about the resurrection of Jesus' children. And Jesus' resurrection to uh, is... God is saying something in the resurrection of Jesus. His body was raised. His physical body was raised from the dead. Uh, And that resurrection of Jesus' body from the dead after being in the tomb for three days, among other things, God is making a statement to you and to me through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And that statement is that you too, if you were to die someday... And you might not, because Jesus might return. But if you are to die someday, you too will be raised physically from the dead. All of us who are believers will be uh, unto new life in the new heavens and the new earth. And uh, that is what 
that is the first point, actually, of this sermon. Uh, so listen for that as I unpack this here for you uh, in a moment. But first, I just want to give you a little background about this passage, which comes to us from 1 Corinthians. Um, Paul is the writer, of course, and he is writing to the church in Corinth. Um, and there were uh, certain individuals in or around the congregation that was in Corinth who had embraced uh, calling themselves Christians, presumably, but had embraced a false teaching, an unbiblical teaching, very unbiblical teaching, namely that there is no such thing as the resurrection of a body from the dead, that people don't get raised from the dead bodily. And these people were probably either in the church, there probably some of them were actually in the church, or they were on the fringes of the church, and they were saying there is no resurrection of the physical body. From They might have said there's a resurrection of the spiritual body, i.e. the soul. Um, but they weren't saying, they, they, they dismissed the notion that a body could be raised from the dead. And yet they were probably calling themselves believers in Jesus. Um, they denied, again, that God had any intention of ever restoring a human body to life again after it dies and the soul departs from the body. They were saying this just doesn't happen. Now, we can't be sure why they held this view. Probably, um, as is so often the case, the church today is plagued by false teachers who teach fanciful, unbiblical doctrines and pass them off as the truth. Well, um, almost certainly that's what was going on in Corinth, there were false teachers who were uh, trying to lead God's people astray, and this was one of the principal points that they were making: was uh, that's that's preposterous. People don't get raised bodily from the dead. Oh yeah, their spirits do, but their bodies don't. Something like that is probably what prompted people to start to uh, be open to and even believe this uh, false view. All we need to know uh, about them is that they were like the Sadducees, like the Jewish Sadducees, who who also denied the resurrection of the physical body from the dead. Well, one of the, So one of the reasons that Paul writes this uh, letter of 1 Corinthians is to condemn. He was doing a number of things when he wrote this letter, but one of the major things he was doing was he was condemning this false teaching and setting forth for his readers in Corinth its frightening implications, meaning the implications of this, this heretical doctrine that there is no resurrection from the dead. Um, and uh, he does this, talks about the frightening implications of, of this false teaching in verses 12 through 19. Now, that's not part of our text. Today, we're looking at 20 through 24, but I want to read 12 through 19 uh, to show you um, what Paul is saying there about why this view is so dangerous, namely that there is no resurrection. So, starting in verse 12, again, 1 Corinthians 15, I'll read through the 19th verse. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, and here's the problem, not even Christ has been raised. Right? Rules that out. If there's no resurrection for the dead, Christ didn't get raised. That's Paul's point. And he goes on, and if Christ has not been raised then our preaching, the things we've been telling you, are in vain. Or are, no, is vain, rather. Our preaching is vain. And, here's the worst part, your faith is also in vain. 
It's a waste. It's futile. It's stupid even to believe Christianity if there is if Jesus was not uh, you know, if Jesus was not raised from the dead. He says, moreover, we have even found we are even found, meaning Paul and the disciples and others who were preaching Christ. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God. Because we witnessed against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. In other words, you are heading for hell. You are not forgiven. God, you are under God's wrath and you are doomed. If Christ has not been raised, is his point. Verse 18, then those also who are asleep, have fallen asleep, who have died in Christ, have perished. They've gone to hell. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. We are pathetic if Christ has not been raised. But of course he has been raised. So all that's moot. So all that's nonsense that these false uh, teachers, uh, presumably, or these people who were holding this view, uh, uh, held to. So, having pointed out for the Corinthian believers in this passage I just read for you the, the, the horrible spiritual implications of denying that God raises people bodily from the dead, Paul goes on in verses 20 and 24, the text for the sermon today, uh, to unequivocally declare that God will resurrect bodies of all Christians, the bodies of all Christians who have died at Jesus' second coming when he returns in glory, that all Christians will be raised bodily from the dead. We'll read that verse in a minute. It's verse 23. Let me get to the two points that uh, we're going to look at in the remainder of our time here. So first of all, this text teaches that this, Jesus' resurrection from the dead is God's pledge to you of your resurrection from the dead. That's the point I made to you children just a moment ago. Jesus' resurrection, bodily resurrection from the dead, is God's pledge to you of your bodily resurrection from the dead. And then secondly, uh, Jesus' resurrection from the dead is what secures your bodily resurrection from the dead. That's a different point than God's pledge. This is It's what secures your bodily resurrection from the dead. His own does. So, Let's look at these points more closely. First of all, Jesus' resurrection from the dead is God's pledge to you of your resurrection from the dead. It is God's guarantee to you that your body will not remain in the grave forever if you, in fact, die before Jesus returns. Your body will not remain there forever. Your body and soul will one day be united again in the new heavens and the new earth. You know, when we die now, our body and our souls separate. Our souls go to heaven, which is separate from and distinct from earth, and we are in our, in our spirits in heaven. But that's different than the new heavens and the new earth. That's what, tra- that's what exists or subsists, comes into being, when Jesus returns in glory. 
and he raises our bodies and reunites our souls and our bodies in the new heavens and the new earth. And that is the ultimate of ultimate state of blessedness. The truth is, in heaven, though the saints who are in heaven are rejoicing and are, and are greatly blessed and thoroughly enjoying it, there is something better for them to come, which is when they are united with their bodies in the new heavens and the new earth, which is what the eternal state. It's what we're all supposed to be looking for and hoping for and excited about. Are you excited about that? You need to be. I need to be. At any rate. So uh, the resurrection of the bodily resurrection of Jesus is the guarantee of this. Paul says that Jesus rose bodily as the first fruits of those who are asleep. He says that in verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, denying what the uh, that uh, uh, heretical doctrine. And then he calls him the first fruits of those who are asleep uh, or who have who have died. He is the First fruits of those who have died. He refers to the first fruits here. He's referring to the first fruits of the barley harvest. The barley harvest, um, uh, well, let me get to that in a minute. The first fruits of the barley harvest, which were presented to God at the beginning of the Passover. So the Jewish Passover, the Feast of Passover, coincided with the, uh, the very, the cusp of the barley harvest. Barley was just about ready, just about the time when they were celebrating Passover. And under the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, God claimed for himself the first fruits of everything that the Israelites, the Old Testament people of God, produced. Whether it was uh, their crops, their barley, uh, or other crops at different points during the year, their animals, sheep, goats, etc., or even their male children. Now, the male children weren't offered up like the animals were, uh, uh, but the, uh, they, were, they were ransomed, actually, so that they wouldn't have to be put to death, uh, so that their lives would be preserved, but they were, it was a payment in exchange for the firstborn children. Point is, the firstborn of everything, or the first of everything, belonged to God. And one of the main staples of the Jewish diet was barley. And it was right around again, the time of Passover, when the barley crop was ready to be harvested. So as part of their celebration of Passover, uh, by divine decree, and I won't, I won't go there, but it's in Leviticus chapter 23, verses 9 through 14, where this is found, but we won't take the time to go there today. But it was as part of the celebration of the Passover, the Jewish people were required by God to offer up the very first cuttings of the barley harvest, that crop, that year's crop, to the Lord. That was, that was, God instructed them to do this. A sheaf of freshly cut barley was waved physically by uh, the priest before the Lord at the temple. When it was given to them, they would wave it on behalf of the, uh, the supplicant, uh, suppliant, 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 whatever it is, uh, the person who is offering it. Uh, the priest on his behalf would wave this before the Lord. It was offered up, you see, as an expression of thanks to God for the crop which was about to be brought in. But it was more than just a thank 
offering on the part of the uh, individual worshiper. It was also, some, God was also saying something in the, in the waved sheaf of barley. It was a token, you see, by God, from God, of the harvest, of the success of the harvest being brought in. It took time to bring in the harvest. And God, by accepting, as it were, this sheaf through the priest, offered up through the priests, this freshly cut barley sheaf, God's accepting of this offering of the first fruits of the barley amounted to a pledge on God's part that the harvest would indeed be successfully brought in and enjoyed by the people of God. Because, of course, there could be a hailstorm and destroy the whole crop. There could be a locust plague and destroy the whole crop before they bring it in. There could be, all, there could be mildew, blight, whatever, uh, that would destroy the crop between the point when the crop is ready and, and getting it in. And God is, in effect, saying, through this sheath that the worshiper is offering up, his acceptance of it is saying, you're going to get that full crop in. I'm going to make sure of it. So God was making that statement. Uh, uh, and that promise, if you will, that pledge, we're going to use that word, to the people of God through that barley sheaf of the, of the first fruits of the barley. So, when Paul speaks of Jesus' resurrection, his bodily resurrection as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, he is mer- making the very same two points. Well, very the same point, I should say. Jesus' resurrection was a token of a great harvest to come. It pointed to a future harvest that was to be had. His resurrection was the first of countless more bodily resurrections unto life. Foreshadowing the resurrections of all those who have ever died united to Christ. Now other people are going to get raised too who are not united to Christ. But that's not what this passage is talking about. It's talking about believer's resurrection unto life, unto eternal life, or uh, the life of the new heavens and the new earth. Um, So it's a token of that. It points to that. But Jesus' resurrection was more than just a token of a future ingathering of resurrected people. It was a pledge also, a pledge from God to all believers in all ages who die before Jesus returns, that our bodies will not remain in the grave forever if we go to the grave. But they will eventually be raised up in glory, to use um, the catechism language and uh, biblical language as well, actually. Just as God, the triune God, gave the rainbow after the flood, Uh, And his giving of that rainbow amounted to a pledge from him to all mankind that he would never again flood the whole earth, which he hasn't. That's the same idea. God is uh, also pledging something, promising something in Jesus' resurrection. And just as the Lord, the triune God, instituted one day in seven of rest on the seventh day of creation as a pledge to Adam and his seed of the eternal rest that they would would be theirs if Adam obeyed 
He didn't, but the Lord, took care, Lord Jesus took care of that. Uh, that, that same pledge idea is, is found in the resurrection of Christ himself. And indeed, Jesus' resurrection, along with which is the culmination of his atoning work, is how Adam and uh, his uh, uh, sinful descendants, ourselves, are brought to rest in glory because of his work as the second Adam when the first Adam failed. Covenant theology there, by the way. So, Jesus' resurrection, bodily resurrection, I keep saying that because there are people that who have said down through the years, well, Jesus just seemed to be bodily there. Docetus did that, and other, other uh, heretics down through the centuries. Um, no, bodily resurrection, physical body. His bodily resurrection is a pledge from him, from the Father, from the Spirit, to you as well, and to me that we too will be bodily raised from the dead should we die before Jesus returns. I went to, um, I've been to several, and most of you adults uh, have been to um, visitations. Um, Up north I heard the term viewings, but somebody said, you're not supposed to call them viewings. Visitations. Um, And when uh, somebody had passed away and you go to uh, the funeral home, and uh, I've stood over, uh, I try to do this actually, and probably some of you do as well, stand over the body of the individual who has passed and look at it for a while. It's sobering, actually. But you realize that person, and that is the person, by the way, many of you heard me say this, but biblically, yes, the person is in heaven, their soul is, but that's also the person. Uh, that body is him or her. Anyway, that person that I'm looking at, or that you know that we look at uh, in a when there's a visitation um, before the funeral, is going to decompose and turn to dust and become plant food. And unless Christ returns first. My body, my body is eventually going to do the same. I'm going to die and rot. And you are too. Sorry, it's not a pleasant thought. But the good news is they're not going to stay that way. If you belong to the one called the firstborn from the dead, if you belong to him by faith, Jesus you will not remain in the grave. Your decomposed parts will be reassembled. Don't ask me how that works, but God's going to reassemble you, and you're going to get your body back, and it's going to be a whole lot better than the one you got now. Amen, indeed. Whew. Yeah. God will remedy the unnatural, and it is unnatural, separation of your soul or spirit, one and the same thing. They're not two different things will remedy that unnatural separation of your soul from your body when Jesus returns. Verse 23. But each in his own order. He's talking about being made alive now. But each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, after that, those who are Christ, notice, united to Christ, that's what that means, are Christ at his coming, at his second coming. 
we get the same treatment that Jesus did in terms of our bodies. Glorified bodies will we one day. And His resurrection, bodily resurrection, is God's pledge to you that you will be raised. But more than, it's more than just a pledge. It secures your resurrection. Which is this, it's, it's saying something different. I really am saying something different by saying that. Uh, one is just the promise, but the other gets the job done. And his resurrection gets the job done for you and me, should we die before Jesus returns. I hope he does return before that has to happen, but if not, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay for the Christian, for the one who is trusting in Jesus Christ alone, who is the right Jesus, by the way. There are many Jesuses out there, the Mormon Jesus, the, uh, the Muslim Jesus, uh, the, the liberal Jesus. They're all, none of them will get you into heaven. Only the Jesus who is the God-man and who is the only way to God and it's only by believing in him, trusting in him alone, not your baptism, not your church membership, not your good behavior, whatever. Trusting in that Jesus alone as your Savior and your Lord. Or as we Presbyterians or Reformed folks more want to say, your prophet, priest, and king. That you will be saved and you will enjoy this resurrection life that Jesus is now enjoying, that we will enjoy with him in the new heavens and the new earth, rather than the horrible alternative, which is the only alternative, and that is eternal damnation in union, in union with our bodies, uh, the, the, the people who are in hell, which makes their damnation worse, their suffering worse. You need Christ if you don't have Christ today, if you not, have not trusted in him alone. You, all you need to hear is, I need Jesus and you need to trust him alone to save you, or you will go to hell. And we all deserve to go there, but you will end up going there uh, versus those of us who have put our trust in Christ. Don't be, don't be foolish. Don't, don't put Jesus off. Don't say, I, I, I'll get around to that later on in my life. You don't have the guarantee of another minute. Flee to Christ. Trust in him alone, and you will not regret it. For eternity, you will not regret it, but rejoice that you did that. Secondly, Jesus' resurrection is not uh, from the dead, uh, is not only God's pledge to you of your resurrection from the dead, but it is what secures your resurrection from the dead. Um, and it will secure, by the way, Jesus' resurrection secures not just the resuscitation, if I can use that word, of your dead body, it does indeed secure that, but it also is what secures the resuscitation, if I can use that word, of your once dead soul as well. The only reason you are spiritually alive, so we're just talking about spiritual rebirth, is because Jesus rose from the dead. You would not be spiritually alive if Jesus had not risen from the dead if you're a Christian. You would be still dead spiritually as um, and would die uh, later on physically. But Jesus' resurrection is the capstone of the atonement. It is what secures the atonement for you. It is uh, God's vindication of Jesus and his indication to all of us of his acceptance of Jesus' work on, our, on the believer's behalf. And without that acceptance... 
we're not accepted. We're lost. But Jesus' work rendered on behalf of all believers was accepted. And thus, we are made spiritually alive and then in the afterlife made physically alive at the second coming of Christ. And by the way, we know, just to back up and support what I just said, we know uh, that Jesus' bodily resurrection not only secures our bodily resurrection, but also our soulish revivification, I'll put it that way. Because whenever the Apostle Paul uses the terms life and death, as he does here, together, he almost always is thinking, first and foremost, maybe not only, but first and foremost, about spiritual life and spiritual death. So that's built into, that's baked into the Paul's use of this language. Even though here he is talking about bodily resurrection, but it, it, it carries with it spiritual resurrection, uh, or the, 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 the giving of spiritual life as well is built into the, uh, the language that he is using here because that's the way he uses this language uh, regularly and repeatedly. And so he's undoubtedly including the spiritual uh, component as well accomplished by the, cross, uh, the, uh, the resurrection of Jesus. The key to understanding why Jesus' resurrection secures both your physical and your spiritual life, I'll put it that way, uh, uh, the key to it is understanding the nature of your union with Christ if you are a Christian. Look at verse 2, not 2, 22, excuse me. For, actually, let me back up to verse 20, and, and, but 22 has the point I'm trying to make. Verse 20, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. He has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. That reference, obviously, to Christ. And then he says, for as in Adam all die, and there all means all, by the way. Every last man, woman, and child uh, that's ever walked the face of the earth, save Jesus, to whom Adam's sin was not imputed. But, but uh, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. And that all is a subset of humanity. In one verse, the, the word all is used two different ways. Note that. Because... That's that's good. That's good um, interpretive. It's it's an important interpretive principle to not always just see uh, well a word and think it's always being used exactly the same way. James is using the word justify differently, very differently than Paul is using the word justify. That's demonstrable from the text. Actually, you you can't just be sloppy. You know, I'm I'm not the only one that needs to be a theologian here. You need to be theologians as well. You can be armchair theologians, but you don't need the degree. But you need to be. All Christians are required to be good exegetes of Scripture. So, anyway, that's a, that was a little uh, aside there. So, but anyway, my point. Um, for as in, in, and the word in is key here. For as in Adam, so in there means in covenant union with. In the covenant of works. For as in Adam, everybody who's in the covenant of works with Adam dies with him. That's what happened in the garden. So also in Christ, meaning in covenant union, 
with Christ in the covenant of grace, being united to Christ in that second covenant that Christ is the head of, so also in Christ all, obviously meaning believers, Christians, shall be made alive. There it is. It's because of the union. It's because you're united to Jesus who was raised and is raised that you have spiritual life and will have bodily life should you die before Christ returns. In the same way that all those who once, uh, on whose behalf Adam acted when he sinned are united to him, so also all those who, on whose behalf Christ acted when he perfectly obeyed God are united to him. That's where the life comes from. And given this spiritual union that we believers have with Jesus, and only believers in Christ are spiritually united to him, everyone, uh, given this spiritual union that believers have, if he hadn't been raised from the dead bodily, there would be no possibility of our being raised from the dead bodily either or being forgiven by God either. We would all perish forevermore. This is a crucial doctrine. I didn't realize, when I first became a Christian, I didn't realize how important the resurrection was. I, I, I was fixating on the, on the, uh, the death of Christ, and that's extremely important, of course. But I just thought it was all in the death of Christ that my salvation came. I was just poorly instructed back then. But it, it is essential. All the, 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 the perfectly lived obedient life, the death uh, uh, under the law, uh, acting as our substitute, paying the, the penalty that we deserve for our sins, and the purchasing of new life uh, and uh, uh, um, acquittal from God by his resurrection. All that is part and parcel of what it means to be saved, and you must have it all to be saved. And it's all crucial. So what? What, What's the implication of all that I have said, that Paul, that God is saying here? Well, for one thing, what this implication of of this is a reminder, a poignant reminder, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is that your life, your spiritual life, if you possess it, if you're a Christian, your life is all of grace. It's all of grace has nothing to do with you. It's just because God was gracious to you that you have anything. I trust that most all of you already know that, but it bears repeating because our old man is prideful, is self-idolatrous, and we tend to want to subtly take credit for things that God has done for us. Perhaps not consciously, but perhaps subconsciously. Think that I'm in the mix there somehow. I, God likes me because 
of my, you know, gregarious personality or something like that. Not true. Lie from hell. Well, lie from the devil. Your life in Christ is all of grace. It's because he chose you and then enabled you to choose him. Secondly, this text means that God has not only pledged to raise you from the dead should you die bodily, but he has made it a certainty. There is absolutely, it's as certain as anything can possibly be. It's as, it's as certain as God's existence that you will be raised from the dead if you are a Christian unto, unto life. He made it a certainty that first resurrection morning when Jesus exited the tomb. Your resurrection is a done deal. A third thing that we can take away from this passage is that all that is left in redemptive history in terms of significant events is not the rapture, is not the tribulation. All that is needful in redemptive history is the second coming of Christ. That's all that remains to occur in terms of biblically significant events. The rapture, by the way, happens at the second coming. It doesn't happen at the beginning of the tribulation, seven years, half, you know. uh, we We love our brothers in Christ who believe that, but we respectfully believe they are wrong. All that's left to happen in redemption history is the second coming of Christ. And it can happen at any moment. But notice what will also happen on that great and terrible day when Jesus does return. Second Thessalonians chapter 1 speaks of this. Actually, let me, let me read First Thessalonians chapter 4 first, and then I'll turn to Second Thessalonians chapter 1. First Thessalonians chapter 4 speaks of the second coming. Um, if I can remember second where First Thessalonians is, there we go. I really do know where it is. Um, verse sixteen and then verse seventeen of First Thessalonians four. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout. This is what. Uh, our dispensationalist brothers and sisters believe is the rapture. We believe it's the second coming. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. That is the second coming. But also at the second coming, what is going to happen is turn over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 and following through verse 10, I'll read. Actually, I'll back up to uh, verse 5. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment, so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which indeed you are suffering. For... After all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when, and here it is, reference to the second coming, when the Lord Jesus 
shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among, those, among all who have believed. For our testimony to you was believed. Those who are not in Christ when Jesus returns in glory, be they uh, those who are they are alive in that, at that time, um, will suffer indescribable horrors. It will be indescribable. Eternal destruction. Uh, by the way, that's not annihilation. Annihilation is bug zapping. And then you're gone. Eternal destruction is being destroyed eternally, but never fully destroyed by the wrath of God. Bodily, as well as spiritually. And uh, those who do not obey the gospel that I'm preaching right now... Um, will experience that. Don't be a fool. Don't be a fool and say, I don't need Jesus. You desperately need Jesus. If you don't have him, flee to him. And if you do, rejoice. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we